Hello and welcome to the Free Associates. That's right. The Free Associates, folks. The freedom to associate. The freedom to associate with just anything that comes your way. Like that really powerful and profound freedom that comes from like being willing to look at stuff and just be willing to say, well, okay, well, let's look at it. You know, I may not like it at first. It may uh, even offend me or whatever, but you know, I think it can stand up to the light of day. And if we have a discussion about it, perhaps we'll get a little further along. Because you got to believe that discussion can't be dangerous. I believe that anyway. So we are the free associates. That's right. We are freely associating as well. Now, it's interesting. My guest, Sam Stoddard, he has explained to me a number of times that he's just not good at self-expression, that he just can't self-express himself. But I feel like he expresses himself all the time and so profoundly and so intelligently. Now, he's going to say... Well, yes, I can offer my opinions. And, you know, opinions on this show are so dangerous. We don't, we got to be careful because Sam has the tendency to be, wait, wait for it, an expert. Oh, my God, an expert on the show? I don't know. I don't know. Might have to kick him out of the station. And, yes, we are at the basin. We're at the base of that neo-brutalist structure at the center of UMass. Yes, we're on WMUA Amherst, and we're having all kinds of fun. Now, so... He says, you know, I'm not really good that, that good at self-expression. And we know that the free associates begins with a drawing, right? It begins with a drawing. It's shown to me, and then I free associate it on it. And then later in the show, when we come back from the break, I show my guest, Sam, a drawing, and he free associates on it. doesn't describe it. You know, he free associates on it, which is a really different thing. Now, uh, he was just struggling mightily with this picture. I have not seen this picture. And he was just like, ah, I don't know what to put down here. And, and I was putting pressure on him, too. And it really does occur to me, guys, like, and uh, this is me, too, very much me, too. Think about all the things that we just, like, put our blinders on in this life. It's just unreal. It's unreal what we see. I'm going to Trader Joe's later. I'm going to Trader Joe's later. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed at Trader Joe's, but every once in a while they switch everything around at Trader Joe's. (laughs) They switch everything around in Trader Joe's, and I get it. I know what they're doing. They're trying to knock you out of your routine. Like, you know exactly the... 48 items that you're getting at Trader Joe's and they want to screw you up and introduce you to new items, right? And so that's what they're doing. And when you've got two kids with you, you're like, thanks, I don't need a tour right now. Just get me to my 48 items. You guys are driving me crazy, but I get the point. And you know, with all this (coughs) anxiety we have about the world, like does anyone ever actually, I mean, I know people do, but does anyone look up at night and like look at the stars? Because it takes about 2.8 milliseconds before you realize, like, oh, right, like we're in the middle of a universe. The Earth is spinning around the sun at 50,000 miles per hour. Like, what are we doing here? We need to take a little... This thing is so much bigger than anything we can even contemplate. It's bigger than the presidency. It's bigger than Iran. It's bigger than everything. So that's the good news. The good news is that we're in a cold, cold, vast universe. Now, the time has come, Sam. Sam, I want you to hold up that picture. I'm going to give you a countdown. I'm going to free associate on it. I'm not going to describe it because that's not what we're doing. We're trying to get loose. In five, four, three, two, one. Show it to me. Oh, my God. I'm falling. I'm falling. I'm falling. I'm spiraling. I'm spiraling. I thought I could finish this thing, but I can't finish this thing, and I'm stuck. I'm in an anxiety dream. I'm like in the, some airplane bathroom, and I can't get out of it. 
and I'm stuck and I'm looking through the Kleenex and there's like turbulence on the plane and then I pop out of the thing and I'm not on a plane anymore. I'm in a palace. I'm in a palace in the Arabian Peninsula. Boom. Every possible free association got. I just got a 100% A++++. That's how you free associate, Sam. That's how you do it. Now, we will be back in just a minute. We have a course laying underneath us of Diodato's Osos Park Zuthers. Why do I have so much trouble with that? Nietzsche would be so mad at me. I am so sorry, Nietzsche. Also, Sprach Zarathustra. You know, which, by the way, is an Iranian reference, right? Zarathustra, the Zoroastrians of Iran. Those binary people up there in the north where the oil used to seep out of the ground in which they used to listen to, like, gas hissing out of the ground and try to interpret it. Now, we're going to listen to Diodato's Asosarx's Earth, and never mind, and we'll be back, because you know what's better than Pride Rock? Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. love that group. Boy, I love that group. And we're coming back with Sam Stoddard. Sam, introduce yourself. You're a veteran of the show, but introduce yourself. Yeah, I, uh, Sam Stoddard, I teach uh, American politics at Holy uh, Cross. Oh, by so. the way, Sam, I gotta let you know, this is one thing I don't, you like to pound the table and grab sheets of paper. Don't do that, Okay. <laughs> You like to pound the table for emphasis. Yes. Now, I don't know if it comes out in the recording. Like, yeah, you could do that. Okay. And I like that about you. But, you know, again, when you do that, I'm like, wait a second. This guy's feeling very strongly. I got to remove him from the studio. Uh, I'm used to walking around so I can flail my arms that's about right, as I'm talking. Right. So tell us your job then, speaking of which. Oh, so I teach uh, American politics to undergraduates at Holy Cross and right. do some research and all that fun stuff. Well, cool. You know, I'm probably teaching AP Gov next year, although it's been a long journey. Um, so I'm going to need some some help from you. Are those twelfth graders? Uh, I think it will be. I think it'll be a mixture, which is the hard part of teaching an AP course. Well, yeah, no, it's not necessarily twelfth graders. It could be tenth through twelfth. I could have tenth graders. So it's just an elective. It's not like a twelfth grade civics. No, that's right. That's right. Uh, we don't have that. Yeah, no. um, Yeah, and I think that's a shame. And in fact, the uh, Massachusetts has been on a long journey with social studies, and they now have put the main part of civics in eighth grade, which, you know, I think is a mistake for so many, so many reasons. One, that's like the second worst year of your life after seventh grade. Totally. And yeah, two, ex- you nailed that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And two, Constitution, like you can't teach the Constitution to eighth graders. No. Like they're not, they're not going to, they're not going to remember any of it. And they're talking about a state test now in the eighth grade, civics test. Now, but it's not it's not you'd be surprised. Massachusetts and only Massachusetts and Arizona don't have required civics. Is that right? Yeah, that's my understanding. And my my feeling is um is that everyone got really worried about civics yep. after the uh, 2016 election basically. And you know, there's there's good reason 
partly it's because uh, I think sometimes their candidate didn't win, but I also think. <laughs> Well, I do. I honestly think that's a factor. And, um, of course, you got to feel figure out what went wrong. What went wrong, but also I think that it's legitimate. I think they'd be better off doing media literacy and civics. That that's really the course Especially they need to be teaching. Age. Yeah, and yeah. we do that in Middle Eastern. You know, my Middle Eastern course, we do a lot of media literacy uh, because you know it's a great example of a vortex where you're trying to get to like what's going on over there, like what's actually happening, and who's who's funding Al Jazeera and you know, the bias is really, uh, you know, it's almost like the bias is clearer when you're looking at Middle Eastern news channels. You have a little distance and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, they're not running that story because of this. I mean, I can also see it in American media as well. I think the best course that I ever took in high school was a current events course. Yeah. Um, shout out to uh, Mr. Salisbury. Nice. He's listening in Amherst. What, what school? Uh, at Amherst High School. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Gaylord Salisbury. Um, awesome course. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'll get you a cushion so you can... <laughs> so uh, so the whole class was... Um, he had us all get a subscription to Time Magazine. Okay. Back when that's how you got that your you news. you could do required that. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, I don't know. There might have been a financial. Okay. Sure. Whatever. But yeah. Um... And we just read the magazine every week. Yeah. And then we just like, you know, went over different articles and I uh, remember, you know, you Dolly, the, the sheep clone was that, that year. Okay. And like, like, you know, it, it was a great class yeah. and it was so much more engaging. Like, like when we did American government in eighth grade, they just pound you with the historical stuff yeah. and it, it, kids don't relate to that. No. And of course not. And so, yeah, I, I think it makes sense to kind of go the opposite way. Get them ingrained now. Oh Yeah. Early in, in so what's going on now, how and then are relating. yeah, and then move up into the history because the constitutional stuff is tough. It's tough, and uh, early American history is an acquired taste. Like I love, totally. I love history, but it took me until I was in my uh, late twenties or early thirties to really care at all about early American. And now I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, you know, I think it's great. You, you got to start to get a little bit older, and you start to realize how short time is. Yeah, and that's when history feels so much more relevant. I think when you're a teenager, yes. you're like. And I have this personal theory that I developed at some point in my youth about how people experience time as a proportion to how long they've lived. So yeah. basically, like, remember when you're a kid and, like, your mom's like, Did wait. Did you write an essay on this? No, but I could. <laughs> um, your mom's like, wait five minutes. And when you're, like, five years old, yeah. you're like, oh, my God, it feels like an hour. Yeah. And nowadays, it's like the weeks, the months, the years fly by. Yeah, yeah, it's frightening. And so um, I think that has a lot to do with our interest in history, right? Because you can't really care about history when it feels so long ago. Yeah. But as you get older, it doesn't feel so long ago because you start to go like, you know, 20 years is nothing. Yeah. And then you can just count them back and be like, you know, it's not that many sets of 20 years when things were so different. Yeah, and yeah. you can start to get yourself into history. Well, I have a corollary theory. I, I believe everyone loves history eventually. Right. You know, my job in the high school is to try to get them to love history as soon as possible. <laughs> like, that's really the way I see my work. Sure. You know, to build skills, but also to get them to think a little bit. Like, um, what well, geopolitic- geopolitics is a favorite in, in history. But I think that once you've lived 40 years, you have almost a kind of intuitive sense of history. That is, you've you've accumulated and witnessed so much history that you almost understand the mechanism just by default. And right. so then jumping into, <coughs> excuse me, jumping into early American history is that much more important because you're like, oh, this is the genetic DNA of our country. Like I can see how this relates now to states' rights and the stuff that I've been hearing about, even just in the background. And the stuff that I appreciate about history <laughs> is always. Um, 
I think there's sort of, sort of a trend in historical studies these days <clears throat> looking at the common lives of the regular people. Yep. And that that's like, I find that much more interesting than like the oh, yeah. relationships between the kings and the geopolitics of the days of old. The great, great man kind of history. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I was just listening to this thing about um, Pompeii and how they've discovered all this graffiti in Pompeii, but like their graffiti... Like, it wasn't, like, like you know, big tags like we see today. It was, like, they were writing, like, in small lettering on the sides of buildings and stuff. And it was basically, like, a lot of it, what, what this was about, was it was, like, their Yelp. Like, they were complaining, like, the bathrooms in this place are never clean. Right. Like, don't drink the wine here. It's always watered down and, like, stuff like that. Yeah. And that gets you so much more ingrained in the lives of the common people. Absolutely. I, I think it's it's much more interesting. And, of course, it's it's because it's relatable, right? It's relatable, and also, I mean, uh, I couldn't agree with you more, and I get very fatigued by the great man stuff, yeah. uh, because what really drives history? Is it really, like, these great so-called great men, or is it the millions of people actually living on the earth at that time? I mean, I, I think it would be the latter. Mm -hmm. um, I'm teaching civil rights right now oh, in really? U.S. history, and... You know, there's been a lot of good work to show, like, w w you know, Martin Luther King Jr., of course, is, this is not, you know, we, of course we admire him. Of course he's important. But that's not how the civil rights movement was built. Right. You know, he, he was in the driver's seat for a while of a really big and powerful movement. Uh, Malcolm X as well, in his own way. But these were, these were machines were created by uh, mostly women, mostly sure. through the church, Churches yep. and and um, they were very coherent. Rosa Parks wasn't a random person who sat down in the bus. No, it was all orchestrated. Was, and as it should be. So, you know, I like to teach that. I'm actually going to show um, Fences to the students. Do you know the Denzel Washington movie Fences? No. Oh man, it is first rate. It's an Augie Wilson play. And what I like about showing that to them is that it's really in, about the African American experience. Like that's all it's about. And it's, it's Pittsburgh, 1950s. And so it's not about um, there's just there's just no white people in it, and so it's much more about like the what the actual experience might have felt like. I understand, of course, um, how white people would have affected segregation. It's not that I don't. I'm just a little bit more curious about the internal debate in the African American community around civil rights. Like it's not a monolithic thing, you know. Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., there's yeah. overlap and there's debate and Booker T. Washington and W.E. Du Bois. And I just want to, I know we're, we're not even at the show yet, but <laughs> I've always been a Booker T. Washington fan, you know, because I'm a big believer that economics is before politics. That's mm -hmm. just my belief is that, and that's not always true, but often if you can get economic power, you can get political power. Um, but uh, Tant Nashi Coates, mm -hmm. he wrote a really good article I saw recently because I've always been like, I wonder why Booker T wasn't more of a model. And he, he writes that, no, there's no way that Booker T. Washington could have worked. They, they wouldn't have let it work. You know, they wouldn't have let that economic empowerment work. The they being the, the establishment. Yeah. Uh, like right. there's a critical race theory uh, set of literature out there that's really fascinating stuff. And it talks about how basically all of the advancements that you saw happen in the civil rights movements were allowed because they were to the advantage oh, of yeah. the powers that be. Oh, yeah. Right? And so this guy, Derek Bell, um, was a lawyer in the NCAA uh, Brown versus Board of Education case on the winning side, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, <clears throat> then reflects later on in his career and sort of develops this, he was a scholar at, at Harvard, develops this critical race theory. Um, and his basic reflection is like, 
you know, the white powers that be call it the Supreme Court or whatever, and this probably goes for a lot of the civil rights movements, they allowed this to happen because there was what they call, what he called interest convergence. Like the interests of the white power structure made it so that it made more sense for them to allow the schools um, to be to be integrated, right? Yeah, and yeah. so um, there was, he goes through a, a number of things there, but, you know, I think a lot of what, if you reflect on Brown versus Board of Education, I know we're off on a little thing here, but um, a, a lot of the repercussions of that were not necessarily good for the black community yeah. um, in the South because you took all these black students, took them out of their schools. First of all, they had generally terrible experiences in the white schools, right? Because they were... Well, I mean, um, you could say that would be growing pains, but I understand what yeah, you're saying. Um, but also, you you eliminate these black schools. Those, as I think we know, um, the schools are the heart of the community, yeah. right? And so you rip the, the heart out of all of the black schools, and that really kills the organizing power and yeah. sort of the political clout of all these communities. You take all these black professionals who had great jobs in schools as, as administrators and teachers. They're not getting hired in the white schools. Yeah. Um, and so for a lot of reasons, it, well, I yeah, get it. it it's complicated. I, it's, it is really complicated, but I, I, can, I really agree with it uh, in a lot of ways. You know, whenever Lyndon Johnson needed help, he called the CEOs of Macy's and Sears. I mean, actually would make phone calls. Right. Who funds Plessy versus Ferguson? The trolley car companies. Right. They fund it because segregation is expensive for the trolley companies. They don't want segregation. Totally analogous. So when commercial interests align, and I think this is like, I, I think of the Reformation a lot. You know, Martin Luther goes and tacks 95 theses on a door. None of that's possible unless the German princes want to break away from the power of Rome. Right. If they want to seize church property, you know, like that's the that's the muscle behind the ideas of Martin Luther. Martin Luther that that's the I call it the Luther fallacy that you know some things were posted to a door. Now those things are important and I think Luther is an actual important theological thinker. Like mm-hmm. he is a break and it's a break that had been brewing for a long time, but a lot of ways the reformation is a regional war. It's an economic and regional war against Rome. So this creates a push and pull with the two things we've just been talking about, because we started off saying that this stuff has to bubble up from the grassroots and that these powerful men are more emblematic of, of greater pressures that are happening across society right. that are causing them to basically embody these, these shifts that need to happen, or it's being led by these greedy moneyed interests. Yeah. And so... You know, there's obviously yeah. a clash there. That's right. That's right. Luther and Martin Luther, who was named after Martin Luther King Jr., right? Right. Martin Luther King Jr. is named after Martin Luther, so there is some nice symmetry there, for sure. We won't, don't want to discount the need for, like, important, visible people, because that's how movements are, are also made. And they're made because they're able to simplify and we're able to associate and, and kind of um, form a personal connection to something that's really much larger, uh, by the way, the book, The Unwinding, I've recommended this to you, right, George Packer? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, this book is so good. And one of the things that he does look at is the 99% movement or, or, right. or Occupy Wall Street. Totally. You know, which really consciously did not want a leader uh, and probably suffered for it. Well, I think – so I, when I study social movements um, <clears throat> or when I talk to them uh, to students – I think that that's basically the most successful social movement we've had in recent times. It rivals the Tea Party, certainly, but when you compare it to um, – well, anyway, the, it's so hard for undergraduates who are 20 years old today to conceptualize the fact that income inequality was not a big part of the political discussion before 2012 or whenever Occupy Wall Street started, 2011. Yeah. Um, 
it just wasn't. Like, we're so ingrained mm-hmm. in it now. But Democrats were not talking about minimum wage. Democrats were not talking about the 99%. It had an amazing ramification on our discourse. And at the same time, the organization itself, I think, has kind of faded. Uh, they might still have a few staff floating around out there somewhere. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, they never built themselves up as an organization, but they did a heck of yeah, a job sure. bringing the issue about. I'm okay with that. I yeah. can live with that. All right. So <laughs> we're almost at our break, uh, but that's good. This it, is what we do. We if you want a segue, I can throw one to you. Which Segu- is segue me away because uh, we were going to talk about opioids, right? Yeah, we are going to talk about opioids. Um, oh, well, we're going to talk about the opioid crisis. Part, you know, this article that, that, that's a different radio show where they talk about opioids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this this article that you gave me points to there are things going on in society among the regular people and their lived experiences that cause them to turn towards opioids as an outlet, um, and it also points to the greedy hands of the pharmaceutical companies right. pushing these things. And so right. much like the discussion we're having here, it's, it, it's sort of how, what's the impetus for these things? Yeah. In this case, it's who's to blame or what's to blame. Sure. Right. That's what it is. It's, is it what's to blame or who's to blame or it's some kind of combination. So let's talk about the article and let me just summarize it kind of quickly. Yeah. A stud, studies have come out that have linked the increase in opioid abuse and overdose to work job loss. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I, I am inclined to... Or factory closing, I think. Factory closing. Okay, yeah. factory closing. So probably well-paying, middle, lower middle-class, working-class jobs, but like pretty with, with benefits, not like half-time at Walmart or something like that. Right, just the problem with unemployment as a measure in, in general. Okay, and they talk about problems with the study. And uh, the one, one, at one point... Someone who's challenging the study says this study wouldn't convince anybody who didn't think that this was true anyway. And so I thought that was a pretty funny comment because I just somehow in my my the stratosphere of my brain just would have, I think this. I think that job loss, because that's a big thing that's important to me. Like I believe that the loss of work in America is a really menacing aspect of our society that continued automation and other things, outsourcing is going to lead to a level of despair. That's one of my pet projects, right? Yang gang. Yeah. And so when I see a study like that, I'm going to just sit there and believe it. But mm-hmm. this person says, yeah, wait, wait a second here. Wait a second, because this isn't a really controlled study. You really didn't factor other things into this. And the problem with this study, right, and this gets to what you're saying, is that uh, you're blaming job loss, but you're not looking at the big pharma that perpetrated this crisis. And so you're letting them off the hook. You know, you maybe corporate America or factory America, you want to blame them, but not so fast because we do not want to blame them. We want to blame big pharma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, I mean, uh, I, uh, I've talked about this book before uh, on the show Dreamland, by Quinones is a master, masterpiece. It's a masterpiece book about the opioid crisis. I mean, it's like the grapes of wrath of the opioid crisis. Mm. He comes at it from so many different angles. And so in the article, they, they talk about this as an everything problem, right? It's a perfect storm problem. It's not one thing. And I think that if you read Dreamland, you're like, right, yeah, it's not one thing. Yeah, I think that's generally true of most phenomena we we, we try to study, but that's sort of an unhelpful cop-out of an answer at times. That is the problem. Well, that's, so what do you think? Just give me your, like, initial impressions of, 
you know, either the article itself or the report? What so, was your initial? Well, I think that of the science here, um, it's sort of a social science fallback that, you know, we kind of think we know the answers that we're going to find. And so we set up the studies to find the thing that we think is out there in yeah, the first right. place. And, and that's that's always a, a problem with the, the credibility of social science in general. And I think that's a lot of what was going on here is people are like downfall of manufacturing. And so I think, sure, yeah, yeah, one factor that is involved, certainly. Um, I agreed with a lot of the critiques of the methodology of this particular study. No. So if you are not controlling for the availability of opioids in a certain area, then you've, you've obviously got a big problem in your study, right? So it's not, I don't think anyone is saying that job loss just caused people to request more opioids or to have more injuries, both of which are sort of alluded to in this article, and that that, therefore, is the thing that caused the opioid crisis to hit one particular area more than another. It has to do with the fact that opioids were being given out. And it's hard. And so when you would get back to Big Pharma, it's hard to say that there was just sort of a natural phenomenon that happened in a sort of scattered way that all of these individual people started requesting more opioids or reporting more back injuries or something like that. That's obviously not what was going on. Yeah, but They were on. being pushed in particular communities. Um, I think the most interesting thing that they talked about in this article was uh, how some states required basically more burdensome forms for doctors to fill out when they prescribed opioids. And that that really seemed to lead to fewer opioids being being. We given have to out in now. Here's states. the problem with that: we have to look at what states they were yeah. and whether they had factory job loss. I get it, right? Like, there's just so many variables here. I mean, in economically depressed places, more liquor stores open up. Sure, you know, because people are depressed and they're kind of living hand to mouth, and so the only joy—not the only joy, but some of the only joy—they might be able to kind of squirrel away—is to get drunk. Yeah. Right. I mean, isn't the opioid thing an extension of that to a certain extent? Like where they're so it's like chicken and an egg a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think there's a natural tendency for people to seek solace in substance. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it was opioids in particular, it seems like it's I mean, we're mostly talking about like Appalachia, Midwest and New England. It seems to be the heart of this stuff, um, although I think there is some in the south and the west. Um, and so there's got to be a reason why it was opioids in those areas and it's something out, you know, it's meth out sure. in the West or something like well, that. Well, I'll tell you. It's uh, availability, basically. Well, it is and it isn't. I, I, you know, an interesting side note is I used to know an ADA down in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and she was saying that the drug dealers in New York would not let meth be dealt in New York. Like they would kill you. They'd drop you on the street because meth is cheap. Yeah. It has it lasts long and all the coke dealers wouldn't allow it. I mean it existed in certain small communities, but not as a general rule. They would not allow meth. And so here you have, you know, the policing of, of meth amphetamines coming into the urban areas by other drug dealers that don't like the profit margin of meth. Right. Well, it's, it's, it, again, profit it's profit margin. motive. Right. So it's yeah, just yeah. like big pharma. Yeah. Okay. Now listen, we have set up let's say we have set up our article. We've already had a really good discussion. So we're going to play a little music. Uh, well, you know, I thought about the music and love this song. And this is an interesting version, cover of the song. You know what song this is? No. Come on. You don't 
don't know this song? Come no, on, please man. don't quiz me on art. You're not one of these like high school kids that was like, I like all kinds of music. Are you that guy? Uh, sort of. I mostly listened to hip hop when I was in high school. Uh, okay, you're off the hook. You're um, off the hook. But uh, I, now I would consider myself that guy, which would definitely make me expert in none. Okay, well, it's Nirvana, but it's a cover. You know Nirvana, don't you? Yes. All right. I'm yes. thinking so hard on you. All right, we'll be back in a minute. We're going to run some promos and stuff like that. Enjoy the cover of Lithium by the Polyphonic Spree. Just maybe I'm to blame for all I 